Thank you, Ivana. Welcome. It's really good to have you all here um, this morning. My name is Dave. I'm the, the pastor here. And uh, just, just great to have you here. By way of introduction, if you've never met me or never heard me preach before, I want to let you know I have a stutter. So it's not just excitement, um, though I am excited. Um, it is, so it kind of comes in and out. So I want to make sure that you know what that is. And also, to be clear, um, Jared was joking with that last, that last comment he made about, I don't even fully know what he said, about seventh level of something. But um, that is, he was joking. But anyway, we do would love to have you there. And um, so I, I'm going to introduce a little bit of where we've been, where we're, where we're headed. Um, we are going through the book of Mark, and we're really excited to be in that. Um, as you can see up here, and you'll see each time where we're going to be walking our way through the gospel according to Mark. And look, last week we had a lot to cover. It was a, a very fun week, right? Did you guys um, just think that was fun? thought it was really cool to get to see people getting baptized. Um, if you were here, you got to see um, one gal, um, Cassidy, got, uh, got baptized. And for me, it's one of the incredible joys to, to see people's lives transformed. Getting to perform and officiate weddings and lead through pre-marriage counseling and also getting to baptize people is one of the just the favorite parts of my job because it, it is a, a clear demonstration of the person and work of Jesus and the transformation that happens in people's lives. And so you may have noticed three really short people who got baptized as well last week. And those were my three um, older children. And that was just, again, one of the incredible joys for me in my life as a dad and as a pastor just to get to, um, to, get to be a part of that, that work of um, God's work in my kids' lives. And so as I said, we had a lot to do last week. We, if you notice, we covered 11 verses last week, and this week we're going to be uh, hunkering down in four. So um, with that, we, we have a bit more time that we have a lot to cover this week. But I want to give a little bit of background into Mark, right? Because we started last week, but we just, I was so pumped to just get into it. And we just dove right into Mark and walked through verses 1 through 11. And um, I, I want to explain a little bit about what the book or the gospel according to Mark is, who that is, who Mark is, and what are some specific things about the book itself. So while I'm explaining some of that, I want to ask you, if you don't have a Bible with you, if you'll go ahead and hold your hand up high, not so we can shame you, so we can give you a Bible. So please... Um, Hold it up. Don't be shy. Uh, hold it up, and someone will get you one. Also, um, if you prefer a Bible in Spanish, or more, you speak Spanish, and that's kind of your heart language, um, we have a couple, so go ahead and ask for that, and um, I won't be able to preach in Spanish or anything like that, but we'd love to, um, for everyone to be able to read God's Word in their own heart language. So also, if you don't own a Bible, please keep this one. Okay, um, write your name in it, underline stuff, ask questions. Um, we want you to have one. If you do have one and you just forgot it, go ahead and leave it on your, in the back on your way out. So Mark, who's Mark? Well, Mark is the author of this. His actual name is John Mark, and he's um, um, likely the personal assistant or personal secretary of the Apostle Peter. Okay, some of you may have heard of Peter. We'll see him a lot as we walk through Mark. He was a really um, important figure. He followed Jesus very closely. And so Mark took down these notes and basically um, took down the experience of 
Peter and put it into the form of, of a letter or even like a sermon. He wrote down with a very specific message uh, the, the person of Jesus and about Jesus. So it's a, it's a trustworthy historical account. That's who Mark was. Mark was also the relative of a man named Barnabas. Some of you may have um, heard of him. We know that from the book of Colossians that Barnabas went on a lot of, um, he, he went on some journeys. They're referred to as missionary journeys. And he traveled around with the apostle Paul, traveling and preaching and starting new churches and telling people about the person and work of Jesus. And so Mark went along on some of these journeys. And there's actually referred to at some point that he left. He kind of abandoned ship and deserted Paul and Barnabas. And Paul kind of had a chip on his shoulder over that and was mad at Mark. And in fact, at one point, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along with him. And Paul's like, no, he already left us once. He can't come along. And they had what's referred to in the Bible as a sharp dispute. And Barnabas went one way and Paul went another way. But we also know that in the end of Paul's life, before he was um, ultimately put to death for his faith, and if you don't know, Paul wrote a majority of the New Testament. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. And so Paul is a significant figure, but you see there's reconciliation, a, a constant theme in the Bible that God's followers through faith in Jesus would not only be reconciled to God, but to one another. And at one point, right before Paul died, he said, please send Mark to me. He's beneficial to me. He encourages me. So there's reconciliation there. And um, just a couple more things there. Mark had a nickname. Um, it's kind of a funny nickname. He was referred to as Stubby Fingers. So um, maybe a shorter guy, maybe he had short fingers, so I obviously like that. Um, but likely not a physical thing. He likely wasn't called Stubby Fingers because of his name, but more because his letter, his, his account of Jesus was short and to the point. It's significantly shorter than some of the other gospel accounts, right? Matthew and, and Luke. Mark um, just kind of got right to the point. And so as we walk through, we'll look at some of those specific differences and, um, and that are in this letter. And so Mark 2, the, 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 the last thing that I want us to understand is this, that um, the author wrote with incredible intent, with a purpose. So we don't just read, we're not following around a little camcorder kind of recording of Jesus's life, and then he did this, and then he did this, and it's because it's short, and it's like, wow, that was a short life. He, he wrote with a specific intent. In fact, the first part of Mark, the first um, eight chapters, chapters one through eight, specifically want us to understand who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? And it wants to portray that Jesus is the king. So the first eight chapters points us to the fact that Jesus is the king. And we're going to continually ask that question because that's the question that's being asked in the first eight chapters. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and what do you do in response to him? And then the next portion, chapters 9 through 16, focus on the work of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus. So the first eight chapters say Jesus is the king. And then from chapters 9 through 16, it focuses on his purpose of establishing his kingdom and what he's done. And it can be summed up in the words, the cross. That Jesus would go to the cross. We see it here as a symbol to help us remember that Jesus had a mission and a purpose and it all centered on the cross. And one author, um, Tim Keller, um, wrote an incredible book. I'll commend it 
to you. It says, Jesus the King, understanding the life and death of the Son of God. And it was previously published as the King's Cross. And he did that because the first part focuses on the King and the second part focuses on his cross. And so I'm going to have some, some different quotes and some um, things like that as we kind of walk through. But um, I, I'm going to ask you that question every week, so I hope you don't get sick of it. Who is Jesus, and how do you respond to him? Okay, that's the question that's being asked by Mark, by the author. It's he's assuming that we as the readers, as the audience, are coming before and wondering, who is Jesus? And what do we do with him? What do we make of him? Who is he and what has he done? And a summary statement that kind of defines not just this, but all of Christianity was found in the way we ended last week. Right? We ended last week in verse 11. What happens? God the Father rolls back the heavens. He opens and he speaks to Jesus. And he says, you are my beloved son. And you I'm well pleased. In a nutshell, that's the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is through faith in Jesus, by identifying with Jesus, by putting your trust in Him, God the Father looks on you and says, You are my beloved son or daughter. I delight in you. I'm pleased in you. And so some of us might be asking, how? How, how does that happen? And the short answer to that question is, um, keep coming back. Okay, because it's, it's, it's simple, but it's not simplistic. All right, we're going to walk through this specifically in a, about a year from now as we get to the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. Those things really make sense. But each week we see a different angle and a different um, unfolding of that truth. That, In a nutshell, the very simple truth is this. The good news of Jesus, what's referred to as the gospel of Jesus, is that he is God's son and God is well pleased with him. And through faith in him, by placing your trust in him, you too are now restored to God, to your creator. He, has, he, he loves you. He delights in you. You're his beloved. You never get away from that. So whether you're 8 or you're 80, whether this is your first time hearing these things or you've heard it every time, hopefully you hear that every time you're here, is who is Jesus? What do you do with him? That is defining of your life. We never get away from it. And that, um, there's one more book that I'm actually read a quote in a minute, but I want to point you to it's called Mark for Everyone. It's just a really simple book by an author, N.T. Wright, and he um, writes down these things, and he, he has a lot of important things, but he constantly brings us back to the point of the message of God's delight in you through Jesus. That sums up your life. That defines your and my life. So again, these are simple truths, but they're not simplistic. So with that understanding, we're going to read, we're going to continue on in Mark. We're going to read those four simple verses in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. We're going to look and ask, who is Jesus? How does that shape my life? What does that mean for me? Okay, so that's where we're headed. We're all caught up. We know who Mark is. We know the background of Mark. Um, With that, let me pray and ask God to lead us through this time, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this time. Thank you that you love us. 
through Jesus. Thank you that Jesus came to be um, one of us. That though he is God, he didn't consider that something to be grasped, but he chose to become a servant. He chose to come to this earth to live a perfect life, to die the death that we deserve because we've turned our backs on you, and then to raise from the dead so that through faith in him, we too can hear, you're my beloved. I delight in you. I love you. Lord, I confess that whether someone's hearing that for the first time or the 50th millionth time, whether, Lord, may that never become something that's dull, that we just roll our eyes and kind of keep going. But, Lord, we know that we need to anchor ourselves in that truth. So I pray that even now our eyes would be open and our ears would be open and we would understand how that simple message defines the complexity of our lives, how it shapes us. I trust that you will do that work through the power of God the Holy Spirit, through your word. We do agree with your word that says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So speak to us now through your word, the Bible. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, in the Bible, we never come asking, and just so you know, we're a newer church, we're never going to come, we're never going to assume that we come and get little anecdotes for our lives, that we don't get, you know, 10 easy steps to a better this. We don't look for band-aids that we can just kind of put on the wounds of our life and move on from there. As one author, John Piper, explains, he says, you don't go to the Grand Canyon to get a greater view of yourself. Right? You don't approach the Grand Canyon and be like, man, I'm awesome, I'm big, I feel great about myself. Okay, and you leave. Right? You go to the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been, that we're called the Grand Canyon State, Arizona. You go and you stand there and you get a sense of grandeur. You see the bigness and you realize that the world really doesn't revolve around you. And in some way that's really comforting. You look down and you see a little speck and you realize that's like an eagle or a hawk soaring, and you, and you get a sense of how big and vast the Grand Canyon is, and you walk away thinking, being a little bit more comforted that there's something bigger than you, that the grandeur of the Grand Canyon um, somehow reveals the bigness of life. Similarly, we come before the Bible, we come before Jesus understanding, it's really not all about me. The best place for me to be is understanding the bigness and the significance of Jesus, and from there I make sense. So with that understanding, we pick back up now in this whole story, this whole book that is pointing us to that question, who is Jesus? So now we pick back up in verse 12. So the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And that's the first verse after that message that God the Father said, you are my son and you are well pleased. And then right away... Jesus was immediately driven out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. And some of the other accounts, especially um, Matthew and Luke, focus on what happened when Jesus was tempted. They focus on, there's a lot more given, it's not this short. There's all this about what happened in his, his interaction with Satan and his temptation and what happened. We're not going to focus on how Jesus was tempted and what was said. Because we're reading Mark. 
It's good to go there, but so often in Christianity, especially if you are a Christian, we can miss the forest because we focus on the trees. And we can look at all the different accounts and kind of cross-reference and see this. But right now, as we're submitting ourselves, as we're entering into this story, what's happening is we're seeing what the author wants to communicate. And what he wants to make clear is not all the nuances of Jesus' temptation, but he wants to point out that Jesus was tempted and that Jesus was victorious. He leaves it simple. So we can simply see that Jesus was indeed tempted and he was indeed victorious. And the few words in those couple of verses are put there. They're really important, actually. They're really specific. And if we just look everywhere else, we miss that. But what the author wants to make known to the original audience and to you and me today is Jesus is the king. Jesus chose to become one of us. Jesus was tempted And he was victorious. Some of the language there that Jesus is with the wild animals is really specific and purposeful. That he's in the wilderness is really specific. Do you know the story of the beginning? Do you know the Genesis story? In Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Adam, the first man, is there. He's not out in the wilderness, but he's in a place with wild animals. He's in the garden. And he's there, and what happens? He's tempted. Adam and Eve are tempted. And are they victorious? No. They're with the animals. God gave them the animals to steward and to relate with. And they're safe. And their relationship with the wild animals is one of safety and of stewardship. And they named the animals, in fact. Adam named the animals. So they're in this place in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 with all the animals and They are tempted, and Adam is tempted, and Satan says, are you sure you want to live the way you were created, reflecting God as the image of God in relationship with God, so that your relationship with God and your relationship with others is good and is defined by God? Are you sure you want that? He tempts Adam. And is Adam victorious? No. He fails. He turns his back on God, and he takes the bait, and animals become wild. If you know the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, I'm not going to go into it, but even just now I'm reminded that you see that picture there, right? There are animals that have good relationships with humans, but then at some point they become corrupted and they become wild and they become mean. And there's this whole picture here is very similar that now animals are no longer safe. That Jesus is tempted. He's in the wilderness and there are wild animals there. But Jesus is victorious. He's referred to as the true and perfect Adam. You have the first Adam who's tempted and he fails. He gives in to temptation. But Jesus, the better Adam, the one who would not just come to fill the earth, but would come to establish a people, to to fill the earth with his name, with his glory, to restore what had been broken. And in order for that to have to happen, he must be tempted and he must be victorious. And he must be succumbed and um, vulnerable to wild animals, to all the dangers of the world that you and I face. The original audience here would have heard wild animals wouldn't have just been like, oh yeah, you know, deer, whatever, like, oh, the zoo, I see them. But if you know anything about the history, at this time, right around the time this was written, wild animals, especially for Christians, would have made them think of something incredibly dangerous. 
Because to believe in Jesus at this time, to be a Christian, you could lose your life. You could be in prison. You could be given to wild animals in the Colosseums. That people would come and would see Christians torn apart by wild animals because their faith in Him was dangerous. And, and the author wants to remind these people, Jesus is victorious even over your greatest fears, even over the greatest difficulty that you can face. He knows them. He has been vulnerable to these things. And He is victorious. Jesus overcomes. And so for you and me, we need to know that we have a God who is close, who understands what we experience. Remember we talked about last week, we're asking this question, when we consider who is Jesus, a lot of us are wondering, does He get what I'm going through? Is He far off? Does He just throw lightning bolts at my life and kind of sit there? Does He really care? Can He really relate? In order to respond, how am I going to answer the question, who is Jesus and what do I do with Him? Do I follow Him or do I reject Him? We need to know a little bit about Him. And some of the things that we see here is that He's close. He has been tempted. Have you been tempted? Do you have fears? Is your life full of questions and wondering where is God? Does He get what I'm going through? We need look no further than Jesus. In fact, um, I'm only going to turn over to one other passage, but read with me in Hebrews chapter 4, where we have it very explicitly explained. Yes, Jesus has been tempted, and He has been victorious, and that is good news for you and me. Read with me in Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest. Okay, the high priest, just quickly, is the mediator between God and man. The high priest was one who would go before God because mankind, because of our turning our backs on God, were full of sin and we couldn't relate with God on our own. And so the high priest would go on behalf of the people. He would offer sacrifices and he would relate with God on behalf of the people. He'd be like, God, they're sorry. Um, they're kind of sorry. I know they don't act like it, but they're sorry. They've given these sacrifices. I'm, I'm going to pray for them. And then God would forgive them. He would accept the sacrifice. And there was this kind of relationship. Usually the high priest, though he represented one of those people, the high priest had to live in somewhat isolation because he didn't want to become unclean. So he didn't really relate with the people, though he himself was a sinful person. He was often isolated and separated from the people. But we have a high priest who is close, who was tempted but didn't succumb to sin. So he had no need, no fear to keep himself clean from your and my dirt. We have a high priest who is close. We don't have one who's unable, pick up back up with me, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you understand that you can draw near to God? As I ask that question, who is Jesus? Who is God? Are you today, whether you've put your faith in Jesus or this is your first time in a church, when you think of God, when you think of temptation that you've entered into and sin that you've fallen into, do you understand grace? Grace is simply defined as undeserved favor. 
It's that verse, as I read earlier, that God looks on you through Jesus if you put your faith in him and says, you are my beloved, I delight in you, I love you, I accept you, come close. But so many of us have this understanding of Christianity. We have this understanding of Jesus that he's far off, that he's wagging his finger, that every little thing we do wrong, he's like, see, you screwed up again, you screwed up again. But no, we have a king, we have Jesus who has been tempted and has been victorious. So rather than looking at ourselves or looking at our own mess-ups, we look to Jesus and that defines our lives. That's good news. Let me read a quote to help this make a little more sense. This is from that author from that book I mentioned, N.T. Wright, Mark for Everyone. He says this, If we start the journey, that's the journey of faith, if we start the journey imagining that our God is a bully, an angry, threatening parent ready to yell at us, slam the door on us, kick us out to the street because we haven't quite made the grade, then we fail at the first whisper of temptation. But if we remember the voice that spoke those powerful words of love, we will find the way through. If our life is defined by all that we are and all that we do apart from God, and our understanding of Christianity is defined by us, then we're going to give up. We're going to fail. We're going to be confused. We're going to be broken. We're going to struggle to engage as we read words, as we sing songs, and we focus on anything other than the good news and the person and work of Jesus, then we're going to give up. We're going to turn away. We're going to think, I've got to do a lot more things in order for God to accept me. But as I ask you, who is Jesus and how do you respond to him? You understand he's one who relates. He's one who is close. And this is good news. And so as we continue to understand, let's read in verse 14. And if you've been here at all, you know these are some of the verses that we refer to most often. So I'm really excited and I'm going to read them. We're in here. We're, we're at this point now where we've come to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. These are life-defining. These are church-defining verses for us. So let's read and continue to walk through. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus arrives on the scene, proclaiming the gospel of God. Let me ask you, whoever you are, wherever you come from, wherever you've been, is the word gospel, have you become inoculated to it? Are you numb to it? Do you hear gospel and just think, yeah, maybe a type of music, something we say a lot, I don't know, a type of church, maybe, yeah, you've got a gospel church, you've got a liturgical church, you've got a this, a Bible church. Is that the way you think of gospel? I fear that all of us have a tendency to misunderstand the gospel and to become numb to it and to turn away from it. But what we do right now and what we'll constantly do is we'll re- Fresh ourselves with the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel. What does that word even mean? Some of us know it means good news, right? But even that, what does good news mean? Good news, um, 
you have a church you can go to. Or what, what is the good news? What does that even mean? Well, let's understand. Guys, this is exciting. This is likely the first, what you and I are reading right now is likely the first time the word gospel was ever associated with Jesus. The word gospel was a pretty normal term, actually, in that time. In fact, there is a writing from about the same time as this, from around the same historical time that this was written, that the gospel, according to Mark, was written. There's um, a document found that's the gospel according to Caesar Augustus. Right? We don't hear about that a lot. What does that mean? It was like a birth announcement or a graduation announcement. The gospel of Caesar Augustus was the birth of Caesar Augustus or the coronation as king of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was um, one of the most powerful Roman emperors. And so there was documents written and people were sent out to proclaim the good news that the emperor is now here. That the right king and right ruler of Rome has taken his position or when a victory had been won, when a battle, some of us know Greek and Roman history in that world, some famous wars, you know, the Battle of Marathon. There are documents that have people proclaiming the gospel of Marathon. The good news, the right team won. And there were people sent out, heralds, to declare this message. Everybody listen up. Life as you and I know it has changed. Yeah, we've been enslaved, but now we're set free. Yeah, the, the empire of Persia defined our lives. We were broken and enslaved, but the gospel, the good news is that you have been set free. These heralds were referred to as evangelists. Have you heard that term before? Evangelists. That's just people who stand out and yell and who knows what it is, what we associate it with. An evangelist is a messenger of the good news. The term for good news of gospel is euangelion. It's directly connected. A, an, evange, an, an evangelist or an evangelical is one who, who proclaims and is defined by the euangelion, the good news. So this is a bold proclamation. Listen up, people. Life has changed. Jesus arrives on the scene saying, the gospel is here. The good news of God is that the king has arrived. The right king has come to set things straight. This defines our entire lives. Have you become numb to it? Let us never become numb. The people who originally heard this wouldn't just be like, oh yeah, okay, the gospel, go on. The good news, Jesus is here. The time has been fulfilled, right? The time has been fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, the people have been waiting. They've been waiting. In fact, we talk about this all the time. From the very beginning, God created us to love Him, for our lives to be defined by relationship with Him. And what happened? We turned our backs on God. Sin entered into the world. And God promised throughout the entire Old Testament like, if you have the Bible or look, you can see about this much of the Bible is full of God saying, things are not the way they should be. You're living enslaved to another kingdom, to another empire. 
Some of us become so numb, we ask, is life supposed to be like this? Are my parents supposed to live this way? Is my financial situation supposed to be this way? Are interpersonal relationships supposed to be this way? And we just become numb and say, yeah, yeah, it's just life. And we hear the gospel and say, yeah, we just, we don't get it. But right now we understand through Jesus, history is changing. The entire history of the world, I don't have time to, to, to bring us to all the passages. I can just rattle off quickly if you're taking notes. You've got Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's called the first gospel, the proto-euangelion, where God says, um, one day things will be different. There will be good news that things will change, that the serpent, who's Satan, his head will be crushed by the Son of Man, Jesus. We know the answer to that. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God makes a promise. He says, one day a new name will come who, through whom the entire world will be blessed. The entire trajectory of human history will change. One day, through the good news, through the coronation of the right king. And then you've got 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's a promise to King David that one day through his line, the perfect king will come. And it's not David, it's not his son, but one day this will come. And then you've got Isaiah chapter 53 and Psalms, uh, Psalm 22 and then Malachi 4, which refers to Jesus who would be killed to give his life so that his followers can have life, to usher in his kingdom so that he can now have a people, a perfect, restored people, so that he would not be the only son of God, but through faith in him, there will be children of God restored. This is good news. The time has been fulfilled. And what does Jesus say when he shows up on the scene? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. These are the first words out of Jesus' mouth. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. You guys, this is good news. Let me ask you, what comes to mind when you think of heaven? What comes to mind when you think of the kingdom of God? Is it a far-off, ethereal place with little chubby babies flying around in diapers and the harps are there and maybe we're singing in a choir? I have a terrible voice. How is that good that you would have to stand next to me in a choir forever? sounds boring. That doesn't sound like good news. There's a whole history of the way we've started to believe that way, but we tend to think, okay, there's good news of Jesus. I'm here for an hour or so on Sunday. See you next week, and we'll gather again together. The kingdom of God has very little to do with our daily lives today, but that's not the message of Jesus. His message is that his kingdom is here. It's now. His kingdom is today. It's very real that through faith in Jesus, He's making all things new. He's restoring us as people. Listen to me. If you put your trust in Jesus, you don't just say, okay, now I'm good. I'm restored. I don't go to hell when I die. I will go to heaven instead. See ya at the end of my life, whenever that is, and I'll just go on living life as I always have. No, through faith in Jesus, God is restoring all things. The kingdom of God is 
taking over what has been broken. Have you experienced brokenness in your life? Brokenness in your relationships? Brokenness in how you see yourselves and how you function? I I know you have because I know most of us will hit a giant pothole in our car on the way home from here and we'll be reminded that shouldn't be that way. There are a lot more serious consequences and things that we'll walk through than that. But if nothing else, that will likely happen and we will be reminded things are broken. But the good news is that Jesus, his kingdom is here. It's at hand. Hey, if you need to be reminded, if you only think of his kingdom as something far away that you can't relate to, pinch yourself. Better yet, pinch your neighbor and say, welcome to the kingdom. No, don't. um, Sorry if anyone just got hurt or anything. But um, his kingdom is real. It's more real. There's a saying, a number of places you can see this. But when when we arrive, when that day finally comes, when you die, when you experience the perfect kingdom, it won't feel like this just far off kind of dull choir concert. It will be real. You will have a sense that you're finally home. In the sense that right now we get to experience the good things of God. One day we will experience them fully and we will say, this is the way it ought to be. And right now, church, in our lives together, we get to experience that. We get to, we get to participate in the coming of his kingdom. Some of you were at an event yesterday that a couple of people in our church helped to put on. They created a giant mural and they had people gather together and there was really good coffee there and there was really good art and there was an opportunity to write down things that you're thankful for in Tucson and it was the whole premise behind that was a way to begin to experience the good news of God making new what has been broken. And there were partnerships with other people from around the city, some of whom are even not Christian or not overtly there saying this is a Christian event, but in its very existence, what it was, was it was a proclamation of the kingdom of God being at hand, the good news that God is making new what has been broken. And it was an opportunity to celebrate things that we can rejoice in and perhaps even to remember things that are broken and that need to be restored and need to be made new. The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And what does Jesus say? He says, repent and believe in the gospel. That's it. That's the message that we're going to constantly hear. Again, I feel compelled to call you to look at me. If you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus, and you think the gospel is simplistic... If you think, as one person said, uh, the gospel is not the ABCs to life, but it's the A to Z. If you are prone to thinking, yeah, the gospel, Jesus on the cross, Jesus coming to give me new life. Yeah, that's great. That happened then when I put my faith in Jesus. But that has very little to do with me now. Hear me, you're, you're missing the point. It never gets old. You never get away from needing to be tethered to that good news. And that message is this. Repent and believe. Repentance is an ongoing process. Repentance is this. It's understanding. I have sinned against God. I have chosen life apart from God. And it's a reorienting. It's a surrender 
to Jesus. It's a reorienting of saying, yes, my life needs to be defined by you, God, by who you say I am, by the fact that you say you're my beloved and I delight in you. My life needs to be defined by that. But we have such a propensity to live life by something else. All of us, day in and day out, we have a tendency to want to break away from the gospel. So let me be really clear. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, there is a moment, a decision, a reorienting some of the biblical languages to be born again or to be regenerate, to be given a new heart, a new life. And that happens one time. It is going from walking away from God and then hearing the gospel, hearing the good news of Jesus, having your heart awakened enlivened and seeing, yeah, I have turned away from God. I need Jesus. I need God's grace. I need his undeserved favor. And it's turning back to God. That happens in a moment. That happens through a process, kind of a mysterious process of God opening your eyes and you responding to his grace, to asking the question that I asked you to ask, who is Jesus? And then through responding in faith, Perhaps for the first time here today, you need to respond to Jesus in faith. To put your hope in Him. To give your life to Him. But hear me, it's not just a one-time decision. It's also an ongoing decision. Your position as a follower of Jesus, your position as a son or daughter of God is secure. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you've given your life to Him, you now are a Christian, you are now born again, you're safe and secure there. You don't do that over and over again. However, the process of repenting, the the need to be reoriented, to be regrounded in the gospel is ongoing. It never ends. It's being reminded, oh yes, God, you do love me. Your ways are best. I do need you. My life is best when lived out under your loving and caring authority and your rulership and your direction. This is the best news you and I can ever hope to hear. Jesus is the King. Jesus has come. The gospel has been pronounced. The good news of your life having hope and meaning and purpose has been answered in Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's God the Son. What has Jesus done? He's given his life for you. How do you respond? Do you repent? Do you believe? Belief is not just intellectual assent. It is whole life surrender. It is relationship. Let me read one last quote to help us be reoriented, regrounded in the good news of Jesus. Again, Tim Keller says this, As a child blossoms under the authority of a wise and good parent, as a team flourishes under the direction of a skillful, brilliant coach, so when you come under the healing and royal hands, under the kingship of Jesus, everything in your life will begin to heal. And when he comes back, everything sad will come untrue. His return will usher in the end of fear, suffering, and death. That is good news. You were created to live in relationship with God, 
through submission to Him, through faith in Jesus. You were designed to be defined by God the Father looking on Jesus and saying, You're my beloved, and you I'm well pleased. So my question to you as we close right now is how do you respond? Who is Jesus? Do you see that He's God? That He's God the Son? That He is the King? Do you see that He has come to usher in the good news? How do you respond? He's called you to repent and believe, to turn to Him, to put your faith in Him. How do you respond? Will you today put your trust in Him if you never have? If you already have, but you recognize that you've wandered away, that you've lived life outside of the gospel, will you repent and believe? We're going to respond right now as we always do. And I want to ask you to consider, how do I answer that question? Every single person in this room, how do you respond to Jesus? As Jared leads us through every part of our response, think of that question. How do I respond to Jesus? Um, I'm going to start to do something new that um, I'm going to do every week. Because I'm just going to stay up here at the end of the service when it's all said and done. I'm going to just stay up here. If you're new, I want to get to know you. I want to see you. I want to get to meet you. Um, If you have any questions, I want to talk to you. If you have put your trust in Jesus, I want to hear. I want to celebrate with you. I want to get to know you. I want to talk with you. We'll have people to pray, and I encourage you to go and be prayed for, whether you're praying to put your trust in Jesus or you're praying for something else going on in your life, no matter how seemingly small or great. We want to pray together. But I want to meet you. So again, I'm I'm going to be up here. I just want to get to know you. So I'm, I'm asking you, please come and talk to me. And now let's transition. Let's pray for all of us as we respond to the question and the presentation of Jesus, the King. Let's pray. Again, Heavenly Father, Thank you that you love us enough, Lord, to speak to us through your word. Thank you that you love us enough, Lord Jesus, to be close. Thank you that you love us enough to have gone through temptation, all kinds of temptation, temptation in the wilderness to the fear of being torn apart by wild animals or by the wild circumstances of life. Lord, you get it. You've lived it, and you did it without sin, so that by faith in you and your sacrifice for us, we can now be called children of God. I pray that we will all respond, that you will lead us to response, to faith, to repentance, to belief, to worship in our King, whose good news was proclaimed, whose good news we've just sat under. Let us respond to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.